one of the things that's always good to get back to is focusing on the promises of God. Why? Because they build our faith. Uh, if it's been promised in the Bible, then God has not only allowed us, but is challenging us to believe in those promises and to allow them to build faith for whatever it is we're contending for. And uh, this next four weeks, we'll be talking about hope and love, joy and peace. And so today we, uh, we talk about hope. And funny thing is, uh, we are, our church is experiencing a little bit of the, um, what do you call it, the shipping and distribution crisis. I had uh, nice Advent candles on order. <laughs> and uh, I got a notice, and I'll just translate it for you. It's out off Long Beach somewhere. So uh, hopefully uh, <laughs> we'll get the, yeah, we'll get it by Easter. <laughs> so <laughs> But uh, anyway, we, uh, we, we, we will, once we get the candles, we will go ahead and uh, light them and celebrate that. But just kind of imagine in your mind here for a moment that we have our little hope candle lit. And uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 9. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. As we open up the Word of God, we pray that we would just open our minds, open our hearts, that we would be open to whatever it is you would speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to go to the next slide here because I put a very interesting character from U.S. history to begin our Christmas season. You wouldn't think that John Wilkes Booth had anything to do with Christmas, but in a strange way, he actually did. In early April of 1865, the bloody civil war that had torn America asunder was ending, Richmond had fallen, Lee had surrendered, and the end was in sight. Motivated by anger and despair, there was a Confederate sympathizer by the name of John Wilkes Booth who decided to take matters into his own hands. And entering into Ford's theater, uh, Booth fired a bullet into the head of Abraham Lincoln. Brownie points for anybody who can tell me the play that Lincoln was watching when he was assassinated. Our American cousin, Carol, the teacher, got it. <laughs> That's why we want education in this country. Anyway, <laughs> While he was watching the play, our American cousin, Booth fired a bullet into the head of Abraham Lincoln, and he died a few hours later. Here's where it connects to Christmas. The news so deeply troubled a young minister and friend of President Lincoln by the name of Philip Brooks. He was a pastor from Philadelphia. And he began, he, he, in his memoirs it says he got the melancholy. We call that today what? We call it depression. And he went into a depression over uh, the president's death and the church could kind of see that their pastor was depressed. And so when the church noticed that their pastor was depressed, they decided to send him on a trip to the Holy Land. So this February, if the 49ers happen to make it into the Super Bowl and lose, you know what to do. So, no, I'm just kidding, just kidding. <laughs> I don't either. So they, they decided, you know, to lift his spirits. They sent him, uh, and back then, believe it or not, they had vacation uh, itineraries. And so uh, Pastor Brooks was on the Christmas Eve leg of the itinerary, and this is pretty cool. Uh, this is back in, 
1866, he's there in Israel, and they have a horseback ride from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve. And it was right at sunset that Pastor Brooks is, is watching all of this. And, and as he comes in, he sees not the bustling town or sort of small city that's there today surrounded by the church, but actually a very quaint little village, much like it may have been thousands of years ago. And three years later, he wrote a poem about the experience because that night particularly was the night which lifted his depression. He said, it lifted the melancholy and restored hope. And he wrote these, this little poem, you might know it. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Remember, this is a man who's not just thinking of this. He is seeing this in reality. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. This is not a major metroplex. This is a place that's quiet at night. He says, but yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light for the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That chorus we know as a little town of Bethlehem was written in the wake of the Civil War as its pastor was struggling from the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. I kind of honed in on that line, the hopes and fears of all the years. We need hope because this world's job seems to be to spread fear. And the headlines can often tell a grim story. Here's some of the headlines I pulled from recently. More turmoil in Washington. Can there get any more? <laughs> this, one, this one from last Sunday, massacre in Wisconsin during a Christmas parade. Inflation at 40-year highs. War could break out with China over Taiwan. Christians murdered in Afghanistan. Who can we trust? Where can we hope? Hope, the concept of Christian hope is never more important than it has been today and has been throughout the years. We look to Isaiah chapter 9 where we begin to see the foundation of all Christian hope written 700 years before Christ ever walked the earth. Isaiah chapter 9 beginning in verse 1 and 2 says this, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. The word hope here in both the Greek and the Hebrew, the Greek form of it is called elpis, elpis. And the word hope here means to wait in certain expectation. To wait in certain expectation. Christmas hope is 
not hoping that the 49ers will win this Sunday. Although I really do. <laughs> Beat the Vikings. It's not, Christmas hope is, is not hoping that somebody's just going to go beat that guy up because he's so mean. Or hoping, how many of you have done this? Tell the truth, shame the devil. That you win the lottery. Why wouldn't you hope for that, right? But because none of these things have certain expectation. Especially the 49ers. <laughs> oh, gosh. But what do we mean by Christmas hope? We mean this. I have hope that I will go to heaven. Yesterday, I went to the house and prayed for a man who was dying. When I got there, he was very agitated. You could tell he knew what was happening. He was scared. He was fighting it. He was not ready for it. It was very obvious. Took time out of the day, went over there and prayed for a dying man. And as we went there, we sang Amazing Grace. We read Psalm 23 and have got the family around him. We gathered and we prayed for him, anointed him with oil. And I tell you, miracle of miracles, the man who was agitated and fidgeting, he just calmed down and then died. Now you may think, that's, that's horrible, he died. He was 96. So he, he was, it was his time. But we can go one way or another. We can go kicking and screaming and in terrible fear, or we can go in peace. I have hope that I will die and go to heaven. And that's what we prayed. That's what we assured him of. I have hope that God will provide even though times are tight. There's two types of way to lose a job. You lose a job and you go straight to the Lord, or you lose a job and you freak out and you become an alcoholic. Lots of ways to handle a situation when all of a sudden that thing you trusted in, whether it's your bank account or your wallet or that cash you have wherever it's at, is gone. Christian hope is based on the fact that we, have, we worship Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. May not always be in dollars and cents, but you'll be fed, clothed, and your needs will be met. I have hope that I will be healed even though we are sick. Now, yesterday it was, it was the gentleman I prayed for his time, but it's not always our time, and sometimes we have to have the hope that even though we're dealing with something that could take us out, it's not going to take us out because it's not our time, and we will be healed even though we've become sick. 700 years after Isaiah wrote the ninth chapter of the book that bears his name, there was a man named Simeon. Simeon is believed to be, we know he was over 100, but they put him, the early New Testament writers, put him at about 112 years old. This would have been an extremely old man by today's standards. This would have been a miraculous anomaly by Jesus' time standards. His name was Simeon, and he was waiting on God's hope a promised Messiah. Simeon had seen many, many painful times in Israel's history. He saw the Romans come and conquer his people. He saw a bloody civil war. He saw multiple revolutions by the Israelite people get crushed. And yet during these and all the most difficult times in history, Simon held out hope. He still believed. 
that God had not quit on him. And sometimes if you go home with no other, other thought than this, go home with this, God has not quit on you. No matter what the circumstances say, no matter what your feelings are telling you, no matter what doctors are telling you or whoever is telling you, God has not quit on you. And just like yesterday, I have seen miraculous things happen where somebody in one moment is living in terror and the next moment living in peace. In Luke chapter 2, verse 25 to 32, we find Simon's story in the Bible. Read it with me. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem called, I keep saying Simon, it's actually Simeon. Uh, a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, Holy Spirit told this, he went to church. He went to the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon, they were getting him circumcised, Simeon took, his, took him, can you imagine, a 112-year-old man walking up to Joseph and Mary saying, give me that baby. <laughs> give me that child. He's eight days old. He's 112 years old. I, I know old people are strong, but 112, come on now, you know. <laughs> Things could happen here. Simeon takes him in his arms, praises God, and says this. They gave him to him because they knew he was supposed to take him. Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, that's the key to the whole verse. As you have promised. You want to pray a powerful prayer? Start it like that. God, as you have promised. Make sure whatever you pray is based off a promise of God. <laughs> if you don't know what those promises are, you can Google them, you can buy books on them, you can get anthologies with scriptures that are only promises. But that's the way to start a prayer. Lord God, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. You know what he's saying? I can die now. I can die now. I saw Rome come. I saw the, all these revolts. But God, here's the answer. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles. That's most, if not all of us, unless you're of Jewish heritage. And the glory of your people Israel. It's all Simeon had to say. It's all that needed to be said. We don't know, but at 112, he probably did go off somewhere and exit history and begin eternity. If you have your discussion sheet, you can go ahead and flip it over. I've just got three things based on both of these stories. If you look, don't turn the slide just yet. If you look, that last part there where I have it's kind of yellow, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Simeon is referring to Isaiah 9 in that verse. And by referring to Isaiah 9 in that verse, who is J Simeon saying that Jesus is? The Messiah. But even more so, wonderful counselor, right? Prince of peace, everlasting father, and mighty God. Point number one. Point number one. Hope is a certainty about your future that impacts the present. Christian hope is about how we live now. 
in light of a future promise. When you know that God has promised to provide for you, if something happens and you have a little less money or you have a little less this or that, we're not going to freak out like everybody else, right? Because we got a promise. We know we're not sure how God's going to do it, where he's going to do it, where it's going to come from, but we know God's ultimately going to work it out. That doesn't mean you sit on your butt and do nothing. You do everything you can, but you don't do it in worry and fear. You do it in hope and peace, knowing that if you commit to do the hard work God's called you to do, the doors will open for you to be able to do it. In fact, Christmas is really the story about a pregnant, pregnant couple, right? And in thinking about this, I remember when we were having children, it was especially our, our first child, you know, it takes, all of you know this, right? It takes nine months for a baby to come. Remember that? It takes, takes nine months. I don't remember it as well, but I'm sure my wife and all the women who've had kids here can remember it's a, it's a nine-month process. Lots of changes happening during that process. Now, here's the funny thing. Here was my thought. Oh, okay, great. My wife is pregnant. All right, nine months from now, things are going to be happening. I didn't realize that she would come home and say, boy, do we got work to do. <laughs> we got a room. We've got to paint. No, no, I like white. No, no, it's got to be blue. No, I like white. No, no, it's got to be blue. <laughs> We've got a crib we need to build. We've got a bassinet that needs to go up. We've got a, a, there are so many things you have to do to have a baby these days. I tell you, a manger and a swaddling cloth, those were the easy days, Mary. All right? These days, you've got to have, uh, what do you call it, the car seat. What's that called, the thing you carry around, you know, carrier, crib, playpen, this thing, pacifier, stroller. I mean, my goodness. All of that, and you do all of that. You don't do that the day the baby's born. What do you do? You do all of that before while you're nesting. <laughs> you're, you're getting ready and prepared because you have that certainty that that baby's coming. So between now and then, we're doing everything we can to prepare for that baby's coming. Whatever it is that you're contending with God for in hope, that hope is coming. But between now and then, let it affect your present in two ways. One, do not worry or fear. And two, prepare. Prepare for that door to open. Amen? If you look at the Christmas story, one of the marks on all of them is that they were full of hope. They didn't freak out. Joseph and Mary ended up being pregnant and not married. In that day and age, most of us would have freaked out. Got to leave the village, get ostracized, bad things happen. Joseph started to freak out. God prevented the full freak out because he said, you know what? I'm with you. I'm going to be with you. And hey, you're going to leave this village behind and live for three years in Egypt anyway. So don't worry about it. All the gossip, hopefully it's going to be gone by the time you get back. No room at the inn? I know many of you, you'd have freaked out. No room at the end, no room at the Where am I going to have a baby? No room at the end. Maybe they had a momentary freak out, but they didn't freak out. Why? Because there's a manger. They knew that they would have provision for that place. And then you got Simeon, 112 years old. Don't you think Simeon's kind of going, God, I'm 112. Even Moses didn't make it past 120. I mean, year after year after year. 
Yet you don't sense fear in Simeon. You sense, okay, I'm 112, but here he is. What's the point? Living in hope is the opposite of living in fear. Financially, spiritually, and emotionally. Like a pregnancy, you may not know when that, who, who's coming or, or, or when that baby's coming, but you can prepare in the present. Point number two. Hope sees through eyes of faith. Hope sees through eyes of faith. How did Simeon get it right when so many got it wrong? So many. I mean, most of the educated religious people in Jerusalem did not see Jesus coming. And they definitely didn't recognize the baby Messiah they had in their midst. The king, nobody did. And yet Simeon, someone who's 112, and they didn't have reading glasses back then. Here's the problem. They were looking for something that Jesus wasn't. When I talk to so many people outside of the family of Christianity, they are often looking for Jesus either to be something that he's not or looking for something that Jesus will never be. To some degree, eyes of faith is seeing Jesus come for Jesus' purposes, not for our purposes. I got a lot of purposes for Jesus, and I'm sure that Jesus is patient as he listens to me talk about them all the time, but his real deal in my life is he wants me to get doing his purposes. And when you begin to align your heart and align your hopes with the purposes of God, you begin to see Jesus clearer. Jesus wasn't, was, wasn't what most people was looking for in a Messiah. They were looking for a political warrior king. They wanted someone to overthrow Rome. They wanted someone to conquer the world. They wanted someone to restore the glory of David and Solomon. That's what they were looking for. When Jesus came along, he came from a poor peasant girl in a poor peasant village. Of course they weren't looking there. And that's the oxymoron of God. He is often always not where you naturally think he's going to be. So you have to step back, and rather than looking through natural eyes and natural reason, you have to look through eyes of faith. They didn't expect the Messiah to be a tiny baby who would come. No, note this. Jesus, instead of exerting his power, he chooses to die on the cross. Who could ever see that if he didn't see it through eyes of faith? Right? Right? For the people who miss Jesus, their hope was in their expectations. Their expectations were all about what they wanted God to do, how they wanted God to look, and how we can get God to change things in our favor. When Jesus failed to meet these expectations, they missed him. They missed him altogether. When our hope is placed in anything other than the promises of God and the fulfillment of these promises in Jesus, we will live in nothing but a swirling fear. Because there's nothing else truly to place our hope in that has the power that Jesus commands.
Amen? Point number three. This is the last point for those of you who are keeping track. (laughs) But this is the most important point. I hope this point changes how you see Christmas, changes how you see Jesus, and changes how you approach the future. Hope, Christian hope, is not for something, but in something. In fact, better, better said would have been in someone. Hope is not for something, but in something. There's a difference in being hopeful for something and being hopeful for something in. I can hope for a new car because mine broke down and I need to get to the church. God, I'm hoping for a car. God, I'm hoping for a car. Wrong. God, I know you're going to get me to the church somehow. He may say, I gave you two legs. And it's only 80 today, not 110. What is he saying? Walk, right? You know? That's <laughs> I mean, hope, you know, I can hope for deliverance from my enemies. Or I can hope in God to take care of them for me. I can hope for a race or hope in God to take care of my needs. When you hope for something, it's all on you. But when you hope in something, it's also on them. Listen to Isaiah's answer to the mess of this world. He says his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Why? Because you don't have to hope for the answer. By saying wonderful counselor, Isaiah is saying, God has all the answers we need. All the answers we need. Now some of you may say, well God doesn't answer every question. Not every question is important to God. I know, it's kind of weird, but it's not. Not every, for us to know exactly how the universe was, exactly, in every detail how the universe was formed. God's saying, you know what, that's not the most important thing you need to know right now. How to go to heaven is. So, Number The second thing he said is that he's mighty God because God has the power to help us. I don't have to hope for something powerful. I can hope in God's power. I don't have to hope for an answer. I can hope in God who has all the answers. Everlasting Father because he knows us and loves us anyway. I don't have to hope for Someone to affirm me and, and pat me on the back or say he's proud of me. Although that feels great. But I can come before God as Father. And immediately he says, I love you, my son. With you I am well pleased. Now you may say, I don't know if God is very pleased with me. Well, there may be some things you've done he hasn't, he's not pleased with. But your status as a son or daughter with him pleases him. Amen? And Prince of Peace, because he alone can fix what is broken. David Jeremiah. David Jeremiah. You guys know he's one of my favorites. I know he's not Pentecostal, but he's so good with stories and stuff like that. David Jeremiah has a great story. Story of a man named George. George McCausland. He was the director of the YMCA, uh, the, one of the directors of a YMCA back in Pennsylvania. 
the great state of Pennsylvania, which Ray and Melissa are from. And uh, the, that's right. The YMCA was losing money, membership and staff. McCausland ended up working 85 hours a week trying to fix things. And he couldn't sleep at night. Even when he was away from the job, he was worrying and fretting about problems he couldn't solve. So he went and saw a therapist. And the therapist literally said, you need to go to the ER. You are on the verge of a nervous breakdown. I'm surprised you didn't have one here in my office. That's how serious this was. But he didn't go to the ER. ERs cost money. A walk in the woods is free. So he went for a walk in the woods. And he sat down under a tree. And for the first time in many months, he felt at ease. And he brought out his notebook because he wanted to journal. How many of you journal? It's a, very, it's a very emotionally releasing thing to do. He began to journal. And as he journaled, he couldn't think what to write. So he just kind of closed his eyes. And when he opened them, he began to write. And he wrote this. Dear God, today I hereby resign as general manager of the universe. <laughs> I guess all our hopes are pinned on you now. Love, George. <laughs> that was it. I hereby resign. It's all on you. Love, George. <laughs> Many of us need to resign as general manager of our universe. Because as long as you're general manager of the universe, it's very hard to trust in the hope of who God is. When you're general manager of the universe, you're hoping for things. When you resign and let God be the general manager of the universe, you're hoping in someone. You're hoping in Christ. What alleviates our deepest fears and restores our hope is when we put God in his proper place. And I've seen some of you. You're so worn out trying to help your children and your grandchildren trying to take care of your parents and fix your coworkers, trying to repair broken people or take control of the messed up situations. No wonder so many of us are tired. I don't think we're physically tired as much as we're emotionally tired because we haven't resigned yet as general manager of our universe. Toward the end of his life, Sorry, at the end of his life, a funeral is at the end. The Soviet premier Brezhnev, am I saying that right? For those of you who, Brezhnev, Leonid Brezhnev, he died. So the United States, recognizing this is during the Cold War, it's a major dignity, they sent the vice president of the United States, who at the time was George Bush. This was before he was president, the first, the first Bush. And so he went there and he attended and he came back with an incredible story. The Soviet Union was the citadel of atheism, communism, Marxism. They had crushed all public dissent and all public rebellion by death or sending you off to the gulags and the stalags, prisons most people never return from. And this man, Brezhnev, was a part of that. He was married to a woman. And so his wife went up to the casket and there were four soldiers that were assigned to close the casket. 
and then bury him. And as she went up to the casket, she just knelt down, said her goodbyes, and she said, okay, it's time. And as they reached for the casket, she leaned in and made the sign of the cross on her husband. Russia calls it one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience they've ever witnessed, ever committed. There, in all of that power, the wife of the man who had run it all had hoped that her husband was wrong. She hoped that there was another life, a life that was best represented by the forgiveness of Jesus on the cross. And that that same Jesus might have mercy on her husband. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The hope that no matter what goes wrong here, the ship will be righted there. In no other time of the year are we filled with problems we cannot fix, people we cannot fix. And let's face it, expectations we can't always meet. What do we do in this reality check? Do what George did. We give God our resignation and place our hope once again in Him rather than for something. So I'll close with what I think is one of the most powerful lines. As we hope in Christ, we say that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in Thee. Thee stands for Jesus are met in thee tonight. As we close church this morning, I'd like to just offer you a prayer of hope. Please repeat after me. Say, Lord Jesus, I commit to not just hope for something this Christmas. Whether it's a present or a card or whatever. But Lord, I rededicate all of my hopes and prayers in you. Fill me with your spirit. 